Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Vanita Gupta. Vanita holds a PhD in molecular biology and biochemistry and an MBA in pharmaceutical marketing and has over 15 years experience in scientific communications, having led scientific strategy for big pharma and biotech. Vanita left the industry in order to pursue true health and wellness. She's also a Reiki master, an Akashic record reader, and an intuitive energy healer. She blends Eastern and Western science and spirituality in order to help people heal. Vanita has also taken control back from traditional education and homeschools her own daughter. It is my pleasure to welcome my dear friend, Vanita. Hey. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Oh my God, I'm excited. I mean, we're gonna go places today. We're gonna, we're gonna really journey together. Uh, before I get into it, I just want to remind our listeners that now we offer ADHD Diagnosis Survival Coaching. If you go to www.adhdisover.com and wait for the coaching info pop-up, you can book a free 30-minute exploration session. And if you're interested to book coaching, you can do so there. And I'm excited to offer that because when we were seven years in the same place where we were like, oh my God, what do we do? There's a diagnosis. What does it mean? Where do we go? I wish we would have been there for ourselves, but that doesn't work that way. So unless we get time travel. So check it out at our website and see if this is something for you. So now let's get into it. Vanita, I'm so excited. I've been waiting for a couple of weeks now or two and a half weeks for this conversation. So you are a heavy hitter in in, I would say, science, I mean, biochemistry, molecular biology, you have a PhD, you know your stuff, and you uh, did pharmaceutical marketing, which is really what like piqued my interest, right? Yeah. Because you're such an amazing human being, just from having to get to know you a little bit, and you have this really kind of intense background. So I was like, <laughs> I want to ask some questions. So first of all, and feel free to start anywhere before what I'm asking, but how did you end up going into uh, uh, this area of, bi of molecular biology and biochemistry? Oh, that's a loaded question, actually. <laughs> no, it's, it's not that hard. I come from a family of medicine. Both my parents are doctors. I, you know, my background is Indian, and it's a stereotypical Indian family. Everybody's a doctor. <laughs> um, or they're involved in the health industry in some sort of way, but, um, or sciences. But um, really, I think, uh, you know, it goes deeper than that. I had a brother and sister who were born with neurological degenerative diseases, um, extremely rare diseases. These are so rare, there's no incidence rate for it. And right now, the only place that they see that it occurs is in a caste system within India. So it's really a story of inbreeding, if anything. Mm. Um, but, you know, my brother and sister, they both uh, crossed over at a young age. My brother was 10 and I was 12, and my sister was 8 and I was 15. Um, and medicine couldn't do anything for them. Mm. 
that was something that really struck me at a young age where doctors could not help them in any way, shape or form. My parents both being doctors, they were able to give them, you know, a better life than they would have had probably with, um, you know, such a rare disease. And, you know, I, I think that they were able to figure out what it was because my dad's like a walking encyclopedia when it comes to a lot of these mm -hmm. things. Um, so he, they figured it out in a way that I don't think others would have. Um, and so they got good care, but again, there was nothing that could be done. I had this perception that pharma helped my brother and sister live a longer and less painful life. Now, I call that a perception because now where I am in life, I think about what if my parents had believed in shamans? What if my parents had believed in something else? Mm -hmm. Who's to say that they couldn't have had a life that was just as long and less painful? Yeah. And probably without side effects. And just to be clear, when you say your parents were doctors and you're in India, this was sort of more Western medicine, right? The approach. Yeah, we weren't in India. I'm sorry, I didn't say that. But it's um, my parents moved to the U.S. about a year before I was born. Okay, got it. Um, I was the first child in my family born outside of India, so you know it was its own kind of figuring things out. But yeah. uh, they were rising stars in the medical industry. You know, they came over when there was a need for doctors. And they came to live the American dream, which is what they did. So medicine was really a strong part of my background. Mm -hmm. um, I knew how to spell words like phenobarbital when I was like 10. Oh, wow. um, you know, medications were everywhere. Uh, they both wanted me to become a doctor. That was something that they were very clear on. And I really didn't have an interest in it. I didn't want to be a doctor. Um, but I was naturally gifted at science. And... I used to escape a lot of my life. There was a lot of other things going on in my family. And I used to escape a lot of my life by studying. And I wasn't just studying the traditional things. Mm. I was also studying things like tarot and astrology. Oh, at a young age. At a young age. Wow. So there was a part of me that was always there seeking answers to life. So when most kids were looking for you know, their next toy or, you know, learning how to ride a bike, I'm asking questions about the meaning of life. Um, so this was something yeah. I was exploring at a very, very young age. And I think when I didn't know what to do because I wasn't following any of the traditional routes and I was like in college lost and you have to choose a major and you got to do all the things and... Yep. You know, biology was just something that was natural for me. I loved understanding how the human body worked. And, you know, it just, it seemed like a no-brainer. But I wasn't going to medical school. And I had a professor who had left medical school in order to get a PhD. And he piqued my curiosity. You know, he was the one who taught me molecular biology. And usually it just takes one teacher, right? Yeah. Same thing in high school. Biology became my favorite subject because of the teacher and how she treated me. So... You know, it's kind of like you get these clues in life. You're led along a path. You don't really know exactly what you're doing, but, you know, you keep doing it. Yeah. I was really good at it. It came naturally to me. Um, but I was also developing spiritually very much at the same rate, um, reading everything I could get my hands on. Again, always trying to explore the meaning of life. One of the things that was really interesting with getting a PhD in molecular biology is you're going down to the genes. You're going mm. to the origins of life. And so that was where I think I was able to marry that love. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, how do you stay on this 
kind of gruesome track of, of scientific information and studying? What's the motivator if you're not really into it? I mean, you were into it, but it sounds like going down to prove or to sort of explain where we come from and what's the meaning of life kind of was the driver, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm a child of the 80s, right? And growing up in the 80s or 90s, and there was all about this idea of like space exploration and, um, you know, what's going on in other countries. And I was like, what's going on inside? We've got a universe inside of us. What's happening there? Because yeah. I was faced with disease at a very young age. Mm -hmm. So I always wanted to know what was happening on the inside. How do we get all these little mechanics to work? You know, it's great that we can understand how the planet revolves around the sun and all these other planetary yeah. objects and satellites and whatever. But what's happening on the inside? What's going on? Yeah. Why can't we figure that out? Why don't we even understand how life is beginning? Right? I always say that, you know, Elon Musk has been talking about, let's go to Mars, right? Everybody wants to go to Mars. I'm like, well, first we may want to fix the problems here because if we go there, we're going to bring the same shit with us That's and then exactly we're going to have the same it. issues, right? That's exactly so it. So internal first versus external, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of that, you know, let's go somewhere else idea is an escapism, right? Yeah. We are not yeah. doing the internal work in order to figure out what's going on. It's yeah. not just physical. It's all the mental, emotional, yeah. spiritual. Wow. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, yeah, that's an intense track. So you're, you're getting your PhD, you know, you're interested because your teacher kind of piqued your interest. You're going there. And how was that? I mean, getting a PhD is a, is a big, <laughs> it's a long process. It's a very long process. Uh, yeah, it was about seven years. Um, you know, you're supposed to get a master's along the way, but my institution did not give me a master's, but that's okay. It's just more letters after a name. Mm. Um, but you know, it, it was, it was interesting. I had the goal really of wanting to work in something holistic afterwards. Mm. I really, really wanted to do something with my degree that would be, uh, you know, more in tune with who I was and what I was aligned with. And so I thought about maybe working, you know, with an Ayurvedic center or maybe something to do with, you know, anything, anything. I mean, I, I was open to everything. And a lot of these were still early sciences, homeopathy, yep. herbalism. You know, they're not early sciences in the sense that uh, they're new. They've been, They've been around, been around, for a while. Yeah. Been around longer than allopathic medicine, yep. but they were new in terms of modern day science. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't lucrative and they also were not considered real science, right? Mm, they yeah. were labeled as pseudosciences, which is completely false. They're actually probably more scientific than the modern mm. day scientific method. Um, and, and we'll get into that for our listeners. There's going to be many questions I have later when it gets to medication and pharma marketing and so forth. And I'm excited about that. But for right now, like I, I like that you said that and what was your, what was going through your head when you graduated and you're like, well, it doesn't seem like I'm going to be making money or working over there. So I may have to go into the traditional direction of science or pharma, right? What was that moment? Do you, if you remember that kind of like decision-making, you know, I think it wasn't necessarily like a concrete decision that was made. Um, I was doing a lot of my own inner spiritual work at the same time. Uh, you know, I got led down a path because, you know, I, I make it sound so easy, but I was I was going through a lot of uh, severe depression, suicidal tendencies. Um, I had a lot of issues going on at the same time. And it was during like a almost like a nervous breakdown where I was led towards a path of meditation and yoga. So that's yeah. where 
I was brought back to my own own culture. Do you looking back and you can share as much as you feel comfortable or not, right? But looking back, do you feel like that uh, depression or this sort of uh, hole you fell into had to do more with alignment between your higher self and lower self or ego soul or was it just life circumstances that things that happened that you needed to deal with at the time i'm just curious oh it was everything it was absolutely mm -hmm. everything uh i was over medicated as a child uh, my parents were scared of disease um this was the heyday of pharma when samples were given for everything i was treated for everything with everything i was given every sample that was there my parents were very scared of disease they had two children on immunosuppressants and right, right. You know, I was overloaded with antibiotics. Uh, my gut was destroyed, mm. uh, you know, and now we understand the relationship of our gut health to the rest of our body and every single aspect of who we are. Yep. Um, I had emotional trauma. I had, you know, the trauma of the my brother and sister. There was just a lot of stuff going yeah. on. Yeah. So completely unhealed in every way. And for depression and such, were you on medication or... You know, this is where the higher self kicks in. So when before I even knew what a higher self was, before I even understood any of this, I think I was 16 or I, I, I had some suicide attempts when I was young. And, uh, you know, they wanted to put me on meds. And I actually put my foot down and I said no. And this is where one area that... Um, you know, my parents' culture and shame actually benefited me because they didn't want to have a daughter who was on antidepressants. Interesting. That yeah. shame would have been horrific, you know, because mm. in their mind, she can just get over this. This isn't real. Like they don't want to deal. They don't want to deal with the fact. Yeah. yeah, they don't want to deal with the fact that this was something real going on within me. They mm. think this is just some, they don't, I don't, I don't know what they thought. Just but, like uh, get off it, like just... Yeah, they didn't they didn't believe in um, any sort of meds for that reason. So me saying no and them not wanting that for me was a benefit. Yeah. So I knew at the age of whatever it was, 15, 16, that if I was going to have to live life, then I was going to have to figure this out that there was no way that I was going to be put on a medication for it. And yeah. I think it's because I had been medicated my whole life with mm. other things. Yeah. I felt the side effects. And tell me about them. Like what, what do you remember feeling that was, you know, that you're like, this is a side effect I don't like and that's too much. You know, to be truthful, I don't remember a lot of my early life. Sure. You know, that's the protective mechanism that we have built in within us that kind of silos those parts from us. Yeah. Um, you know, when I tap back in, if I'm deep in meditation, I can recall a lot of things, but you know, just on surface level, I don't necessarily remember. I do remember things like, so I had issues that I was dealing with like eczema and allergies and asthma, and I would have, you know, all of these steroid inhalers and, you know, whatever's out there. And I was jittery. I was nervous. None of the allergy medicines were working. I, you know, I, I just, I was just a mess, you know, and I couldn't tell what was a mess because I was a mess and what was a mess because the medicine made me a mess. Yeah. And that's a very important point. And I say this a lot on our podcast that, you know, we don't know what we're experimenting with, right? We don't know if one medication might be too much for a child and we'll see the results in the future, right? Or, or, or maybe, you know, maybe it's another result on top of a result, but side effects. And I always say that, you know, children at a young age will make this about them as in like I just, I'm a mess yeah. there's something wrong with me it can't be the medication because the doctor gave it trust the doctor right so I can totally relate to that moment of like I don't know 
is, am I the mess or is the medication? And probably most people will blame themselves or the, the child or whatever, but not the medication. Absolutely. I think I was 24 when I first had the realization when I was like, wow, those problems, you know, no matter what was going on, those problems were not me. And it wasn't until I was 24, which is, you know, pretty significant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so now you're, um, you've graduated and what was the first job that you, uh, found yourself in, um, you know, that you were like, it's a slow progression. Um, you know, when you get a PhD, there's a lot of different avenues you can take. Um, I did the more traditional route, which is to go do a postdoctoral fellowship. So you work in another laboratory, um, And I did that a couple, I did a couple of those and I just did not enjoy research science. It seemed so arbitrary. And this is where I began to truly understand what happens in clinical trials. This is where I began to truly understand scientific experiments. And I, you know, it's a, this is a whole different conversation, very in depth, but I just did not enjoy it. And there came a point where I was again in a survival mentality because of a life change that had happened. And so I wanted to make more money. And where does that money exist? It exists in pharma. They really do pay for a lot. And I said that I would never go into pharma, but Mm. it's amazing what will happen when you are in survival. And so, you know, I was gifted at what I did, not just in terms of science, but I was also a gifted communicator when it came to science. Mm-hmm. I knew how to break down information. I knew how to present it in a way that was very understandable, no matter what background people were coming from. I knew how to really um, just demystify science, I mm-hmm. think, for people. Mm-hmm. And so this was a great way to kind of blend a lot of the things that I enjoyed. Um, I ended up first taking a job in scientific advertising. Advertising became a little bit too much. That was a really, um, you know, that was that was interesting to kind of really see the mechanisms at play when it comes to advertising. And eventually I moved into PR, so public relations for science. And I felt a little bit better because, you know, I get to work with patients and advocates and mm. people who are really needing something. Because of my degree and because of my background, I'm not working for something like selling Viagra or, mm-hmm. you know, any lifestyle things. I'm working with patients and with medications that yeah. are like my brother and sister or people with terminal cancers, yeah. devastating disease. And so in my mind, I'm doing something good. I'm yeah. helping people because they're in desperate need. Isn't that what Viagra is for too? Yeah. <laughs> People are in desperate need. I had to make a joke, but no, it's a good point, right? It's like, what are you, what is your soul okay with uh, selling or putting out there for the money? And I had know? my limits, you know, there were, yeah. there were some companies that wanted me to work on narcotics and I put my foot down and I said, no, I would not do it. When you say narcotics, what do you mean? Opioids, painkillers. Um, that you recognize now as narcotics, but back then you just... I knew they were narcotics. You knew it. Yeah. Because you could, you could, you know, you know how these addictions happen Mm. and you can see the promotions that are happening. You can see the way things are being advertised. Um, This was, you know, I'd say after the heyday of that, you know, because that, that went on for a period of time, but then there was definitely some regulation that went down that kind of, um, you know, put a damper on Mm -hmm. the way they could advertise. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But there's still companies that are based specifically on that with this idea of need. And I am not saying that people don't need some sort of painkiller, especially when they're in emergency surgery. And, you know, and I know that there are people dealing with significant cancers that have a lot of pain and debilitating issues. I also know that they don't need to be advertised, that doctors Mm. know. Yeah how to use them, when to use them. And there's no need for advertising when it comes to them. Let's talk about that for a second. Why would you want to advertise that, right? Because to me, it's almost like let the patient come to the doctor and ask for it. That's why we advertise, right? It's not like, well, trust the doctors that when it's needed, it'll be prescribed. But the pressure the patients will put on the doctor suddenly of like, hey, I really need this thing. It's almost like I saw a commercial, I know what it's for, can you prescribe it, right? Is that where advertising comes in for these kind of things? So it's not always direct to consumer. It's not always the patients that we're advertising to. It's to the doctors specifically. Mm. The, you know, the industry is really uh, a behemoth. We're not talking just TV. We're talking flyers, brochures. Flyers, uh, visits to the office. Yeah. 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 yeah, All the learning materials, medical conferences, you know, it goes on and on and on. So there's a whole uh, sort of strategy, a brainstorm that happens, how to sell it to the doctors first, right? Because once they have it, then they prescribe it. So there's a whole first late level. Sort not of, necessarily. Sometimes they might go to the consumers first, right? Something mm. like Viagra, they're not going to go to a doctor first. They're going to go to the consumers. They're going to get consumer demand for that. Well, at some point, they'd probably have of to course, right, they will. explain It'll be, it to the doctor. So the thing is, I guess it's not a first, second, third. You know, right. it's, a, it's, a, it's a multi-pronged strategy. Yeah. And it's just right. where the dollars are, you know, more spent. Is it spent towards the consumers? Is it spent towards, you know, the doctors? Right. Is it gone? Right. Maybe it's to the PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers. Maybe it's towards health insurance companies there's lots of different layers to this so it's not you know we're just simplifying it right now yeah um but the idea that you know when it came to something like a painkiller the reason you would advertise to a doctor is because maybe you're trying to promote this one over another Mm -hmm. multiple companies there's competition the the biggest problem for me you know, that I've always had with the industry is this idea of competition versus collaboration. How much further along could we be in health if we were to collaborate with one another? There was a, the scientist that I really respected and, um, she wrote a really beautiful book called Molecules of Emotion. Um, her name is Candace Pert. And, you know, in her book, she said something along the lines of like, scientists would rather use each other's toothbrushes than terminology. Because you can have a protein in the body that has like 17 different names, you know, and it's a single protein and it's Mm. because they would rather use each other's toothbrush than terminology. And a lot of this is because there's a lot of redundancy that happens in the body. There's a lot of mechanisms that are repeated over and over. And so somebody might discover something that's the same thing in a different pathway and Mm. give it a different name. So, you know, the same thing is happening where there's a lot of information that is siloed because it's patented. And, you know, that has to do more with the money than it has to do with the science. And so it's a dangerous road because now you're not really looking at it for the benefit of the patients. You're looking at it at the benefit for the people who are investing in this. So that that's a great point. And I want to go to those uh, 
internal wrestling matches that you must have had with yourself <laughs> when you got a new, uh, let's say you got a new job to uh, advertise something or do PR or market something that you were clear was a, a drug or, you know, addictive, or you were clear that maybe they're over-promising or they're, they have some other agenda. Like, can you just kind of feel into that and, and, and tell us what, what that's like and what you felt and what you saw, what you thought? Yeah. So I wasn't necessarily dealing with anything that was addictive because that's where I put my foot down. But I was dealing with, like I said, uh, cancers that did not have any other therapies out there or maybe devastating cancers that this was the third, fourth therapy that was on the market. And, you know, so the thing is, is that when you are faced with a diagnosis, as really interesting that you started with that, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that intro, when you're faced with a diagnosis, the first thing that happens is you go into ultimate panic and fear. What do I do? And this is the biggest problem that happens because what happens is, is that we give away our power of authority. We fall back into a fear and then we ask, what do I need to do? And we are more susceptible to being influenced by everything else that's there. And so there's a, you know, This, I think, is where people then start begging and asking for something to help them. And again, we have been taught, you know, by society, by our programming, by culture, whatever, that things should be easy, Hmm. that we need to have a magic bullet, that we need to just be able to be done with it. And we've forgotten that disease does not come because of an accident or a fluke, but of something that has been going on for a very long time. Now, I've had to wrestle with this concept, you know, when it comes to children quite a bit, right? Because it's devastating when when you see a child that's diagnosed with anything, even a cold, right? Watching your child go through sniffles is difficult. You just want them to feel better. Yeah. But it is true that, you know, there's layers and layers of what's happening to us before we even have a child. We're, we're imprinting the children with whatever's going on with us. And this is going on for generations. Yeah. This right. is not something that happens as a fluke. And so we're seeing rise in disease for lots of different reasons. But going back to your original question of like, you know, how did I wrestle with this? is when you start to look at this data and you're like, okay, well, this is doing something. This is giving something. This is giving some semblance of hope. It's this idea of hope. What pharma is selling is hope. Yeah. And that's all it is. It's pure hope. And that can cloud your judgment of what is actually going on. So when I used to look at the data, I used to think that, you know, this isn't like that great, but you would spin it in ways to make it seem super amazing and wonderful. And I just want to insert here that I haven't worked in pharma. I've worked in advertising, film, marketing, right? Design. And it's not a strictly pharma kind of no, approach. This is advertising. It's, or even, yeah, even more so it's the capitalistic nature of how can I milk this to my benefit? How can we make the most money from the, what do we need to do here that we can, quote unquote, get away with. 
Exactly. And that's, that's all it is. And a lot of money has been spent to invest in the development of this thing and you're going to make it work. There's a lot of drugs on the market right now that are based on side effects that were more promising than the actual target. I think Viagra is one of them. I'm not, I'm not positive, but I believe it's one of them. There's another one that was like that, um, eyelash, uh, grower Latisse. Oh, uh, is, you're saying where the side effects are more, there's more side effects than benefits. So where the drug missed the endpoint mm. for what it was actually being studied for, but then a side effect was noticed that could be marketed. Got it. So I forget what Latisse was, uh, maybe macular degeneration or something like that. Some eye disease. Somebody just told me literally this weekend about it. And I forget the company name where they were studying something. They realized that it makes eyelashes grow. And so they, you know, you've spent a lot of money in this drug. You want it on yeah. the market. You want to get yeah. it back. You have a patent on it, you know, so you're going to market it for something. Yeah. Um, you know, the, <laughs> you know, you can look at this in all different ways, but in the end, like this is trying to just say that, you know, there's, I think the biggest, the biggest qualm that I had with a lot of this is that it's this isolationist model where you are isolating components and you're isolating, uh, you know, effects and you're not looking at a whole body system. Yeah. So if, for example, I, you know, one of the things that I used to always comment on is that, you know, people would send me research papers that would show like tumor has anti-cancer properties. And yes, it's absolutely true. Turmeric is one of the most amazing plants roots out there mm. because it's antifungal it's antibacterial it's antiviral it's anti-everything and it has a lot of health benefits in india they say haldi which means turmeric haldi for health and you know mm. you can i used to play i used to do my own personal scientific experiments at home where i'd put a lot of turmeric into a food and stick it in the back of the fridge and open it up three months later and it was perfectly fine wow. and you know so you would get these research papers, but then the problem is, is that they would extract the active ingredient, which is curcumin, and try to study that. And they would see it in preclinical pre models and blah, 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 blah. And then they can't see the effects as they go further and further down the line. Well, that's because you've taken a single isolated ingredient away from the rest of the other chemicals right. that are working in concert. Yeah. We see this all the time. This has happened so much in pharma where they're like, great, you want to stop pain? We just need to knock this one thing out and then we can forget about the rest of it because this is the only thing that causes pain. As opposed to understanding that the body is a complex mechanism yeah. of lots of different interrelated interactions and you don't just stop one thing you are looking at an entire system of how it functions our bodies compensate for everything that goes on right yeah. if there's yeah. if there's something wrong with your heart and it begins to pump less blood your renal system will take over and try to help it out in mm -hmm. different ways right yeah. pushing more fluid out doing whatever it needs to take in order to compensate for the heart not working such a smart machine it is the most intelligent machine that there is on earth. Yeah. And so what happens with a lot of these, you know, drugs that are out there is that they're looking at a singular mechanism. Mm. So there was, I remember like breast cancer has always been the biggest, 
you know, research initiative that is, that's out there. And mm. I, I, you know, the more I look into the history of this, the more I begin to understand how this was played in a lot of different ways. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's triple negative breast cancer, which is the most aggressive type of breast cancer that out there. Mm. And, they say that it is more aggressive because it doesn't have one of the three markers that are known for breast cancer. Now, the thing is, those three markers, why do we know them? They're drug targets. That's the only reason we have these markers is because they're drug targets. So when we say that it's the most aggressive cancer, it's because it just can't be targeted by these three different categories of drugs. Mm -hmm. And... Yes, it is more aggressive in terms of like there's a more progressive timeline. But the problem is, is that, you know, people are just looking at it in the terminology that's being yeah. defined for yeah. them by pharma. Yeah. And nobody really truly understands what any of this means. And honestly, I think everything you just said, yes. And it totally can be copy paste over to ADHD because there's so much that we isolate, right? Mm -hmm. That we say, oh, well... Uh, only drugs are going to be effective to to uh, take care of ADHD, but it's only measured in like the the, the 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 studies that they refer to are like one to two year studies where somebody was a bit more focused, right? Oh, this is working, yes. so that's the drug for you, right? Not looking at the entirety of the being, the nervous system, the brain, the environment, right? The family, transgenerational traumas, the the, the energy at home, all the things that stress out a nervous system and then the brain, right? and we behave a certain way, none of that is really looked at by most experts, not all of them. There's, there's new movements and new experts that are like, let's look at everything at the holistically, right? And I just uh, pulled up a quote as one of my favorite quotes is Gabor Mate says that people's brain physiology doesn't develop separately from their life experiences and their emotions. Yes. So in other words, if you just look at that statement, then we cannot isolate ever just one thing and say, oh, we're going to target that with this man-made substance and we'll be fine. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I think that is an important aspect of it is that we are looking again at when, when we look to the outside for something to help us fix us. Yeah. We're not looking at what we have done. What an opportunity we're missing. Yeah. Right. You know, what if, what if, this disease was not a curse. What if it's a blessing for you to change the way you live? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, my daughter, as we have discussed, you know, she does not necessarily have ADHD, but there is something that is presenting itself in yeah. its own way. And we explored the routes of ADHD and, you know, and all these other things. And, Rather than me freaking out and trying to figure out what it is, what I've done is I've just changed the way that I've parented. I've changed the way that I respond to her. Yeah. I changed the way that she eats. I've changed the way that she uh, regulates her nervous system. Yeah. I've gone about it in a different way. Yeah. And what has this done? It's bettered my life. And hers and yours together. It's we're, we are functioning better than yeah. we ever have before. And that's exactly, that's my point. I always say this, like if you're, if whatever you're looking at, your body, your family, your unit is a vehicle, like a car, 
then a disease or a disorder is like a check engine light. Exactly. It's not that the car's fucked up now. It's more like, let's open the hood. What can we do here to make to get this to run again? And that's a beautiful example, right? And we have the same thing. When we calm down the energy, in our, the frenetic energy of life that enters our families through media, through whatever news and people and, you know, all this stuff, if we can work there and the internal system, like you so beautifully described, magic happens, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it takes time. It takes time. It takes commitment and it takes persistence. Yeah, it's not a quick fix. No. And I think that that is the biggest problem that we have in society is the fact that we expect things to be fast. We live in a, we live in an age of instant gratification. You can order something on Amazon and have it the next day. Right. You can, you know, turn on the TV and get any channel you want, any movie you want. You can pick up a phone and order your favorite food to your door. Google anything. Boom. Google anything. Yeah. We live in a world of instant gratification and yeah. we have forgotten what it means to enjoy the process of life yeah. and what the process means. Yeah. And because of that, people are not taking responsibility for what is going on in their lives. Why do you think, I just want to insert here such a great point, like, you know, I deal with a lot of parents who are like, yeah, but I can't, I can't, I can't change all that. I can't, I don't have the time, the energy. And then, then comes the kicker where people say, well, you're fortunate that you can, but I can't, right? What do you, what do you say to that when you hear that? It's one step at a time. I, and you know, I've used my own life for this as, as you heard, I, you know, was going through suicidal tendencies and depression. And I even had that all the way through pregnancy and beyond. Mm. This is not something that was, you know, cured when I was in my twenties or thirties or, you know, just went away. This was something that plagued me. And, you know, I don't, I, it was this lifetime. I think it was previous lifetimes. I think it goes deeper than even mm. I even know. And, you know, after I had my daughter, I dealt with three and a half years of postpartum depression. And because I had already dealt with depression my whole life, I didn't treat it. I didn't do anything. Um, and what I kept doing was I kept making, you know, when I had her, though, that was when I realized I had to do something about this. Like I couldn't just go on living the way I was living because now I had somebody who was reliant on me and dependent on me. And I couldn't have these kind of thoughts anymore. Yeah. And so I did it one step at a time. And for me, it started with, you know, my diet and nutrition and it started with exercise and it started, and this is what I teach people now. I deal with, you know, looking at a lot of how we treat our body mm -hmm. in order to heal our mental, emotional and spiritual bodies. Um, but it's, you know, I tried to do all the things at once and what would I do? I would fall apart. So it's about implementing something that you can start with that you can commit yourself to. Um, you know, if you're starting a meditation practice, if you say, I'm going to meditate 20 minutes a day, you're probably going to not meditate. Yeah. But if you say, I'm going to meditate five minutes a day for four days this week, that's probably a goal you can achieve. Yeah. Yeah. So it's starting with what you can do wherever you can, allowing that to be part of your life and then building slowly from there. 
I mean, we go through this with children all the time, right? They're constantly changing in their needs. When you have a baby, you don't need to brush their teeth, but now suddenly brushing teeth is something that has to be incorporated into a routine and it becomes a routine. And now they have to eat at specific times with the family. They don't just get to eat whenever they want, you know, because as an infant yep. to a toddler, they're probably eating all day long. Right. But then there comes a point where there's meal times. Now they integrate that into their schedule. We do this in life. We're constantly changing the way we live we're constantly making changes to how we behave mm -hmm. so it's the same mentality we're just going to add in a step where we can achieve something and then build from there yeah. but if you try to do everything at once the likelihood is you're probably going to let it all gonna go fail yeah so you know you have a need for something where it's okay like i know i need to incorporate more vegetables in do it three to four days a week Right. And see what right. happens, yeah. right? Allow your taste buds to acclimate. Allow your body to acclimate. Yeah. Because if you go full force and you have an unhealed gut, your body's probably going to reject those vegetables right. anyway. From one extreme to another, yeah. So it's about learning mm. what is right for you, where you are in that moment. And not yeah. comparing yourself to anybody else. Because well, when you compare yourself to somebody else, you're always going to feel like you're a failure. That's the hard part, right? Uh, one of the harder parts. And I love this. And I want to add just a really cool recent story. And so you're kind of um, talking to or speaking to this idea of, you know, don't bite off too much up front, right? Little chunks, one one day at a time. Discipline, you know, um, that can be achieved, right? I love that. And the second thing I want to add is recently what I what I discovered is this trusting, right? Like, I remember I had a few parents when we first started a child-led education where they said they don't do homework, they don't do any, you know, there's no grades, they just get to do whatever they want all day long. And I was like, what? But how, but how, you know, do they, what if they, and they're like, just chill, just chill. You'll see, you'll see. And two stories. One is back then, one is like last week. So what happened is our oldest just couldn't, he couldn't read and everybody else was reading. And now I'm getting antsy. I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is a good idea, this education, right? And one day I go to school, I was, I don't think I was volunteering, but I was helping with some cleanup or something that day. And I go into the room and they're playing Pokemon cards, right? Mm -hmm. You know Pokemon yeah. cards. Everybody knows Pokemon. So universal. I walk in and he's playing Pokemon cards. And at first sight, I'm like, yeah, it's what he loves. He's playing Pokemon. Okay, fine. So, and then I hear him like read the card. And I was like, wait, but did he just read the card or does he know what's on there? And I said, hey, Kai, here's another card. What's on this? And he reads it. And I was like, oh, you can read. He's like, yeah, dad. If not, I couldn't play it. I'm like, well, you didn't, because he never wanted to read books, never touched a book. And in that moment, I was like, oh, he had a need to read. He wasn't just forced to read. And on his own time, he read. And now he reads and he reads books and he loves it and he's good at it and he's not behind, right? But we had to trust. And the second one is really cool. I'm so proud of this one. So it was like three days ago, our youngest, uh, Etienne, he comes, uh, oh, sorry, it happened differently. I went to the house and I saw pieces of paper around his room, one on the screen, one by the bed, one in the, on the mirror that said something like, um, is this for homework, question mark, because you vowed, dot, dot, dot. And I was like, what is that? So I read it. So he determined that he'd been playing too many video games, that he wants to pull it back. He wants to not use screens for five, he, he called it five business days. 
He wants to be <laughs> off screens, right? He had a little thing with little boxes that he could check, like day one, day two, day, right? And I mean, I started crying yeah. because we did not tell him to do that. Like he's 11 and finally he's like, dad, you know, I just, I felt a little addicted. I felt like I was on the iPad always if I wasn't on my PC. I'm going to take a break. And the last, this was on Sunday and this is, today is Wednesday. So the last three days were magical. Like we were spending time together. He was present. He felt and looked happier and healthier, right? And I'm mentioning that because as parents, we often don't trust that they can actually start to feel and regulate themselves as well, right? Of course, we don't want to feed an 11-year-old cocaine and say, oh, he'll stop when, it, you know, you get my point. But it was just such a, oh, wow, like we didn't have to do anything. Well, of course, we, what we did is like you described, we created an environment where we calm things down, where we eat, eat healthier, right? So it's not like we didn't do anything. But in that environment that I called magic earlier, magic happens, right? I agree. I couldn't have predicted that. It was like, what a blessing. I mean, I cried driving my car to the store afterwards, like joy. Yeah. I was like, oh my God. Anyway, it's so long story, beautiful. But, no, I think, yeah. I think those are great examples of just how much we have been manipulated to control and to control our children, to control all these different aspects yeah. of life. You know, we were, we were told like, oh, because kids' brains develop at this rate and you want to give them everything, give them all the languages, have them read early, learn math early, do all these things. Right. But what happens is, is that we are now um, interfering with their development when we do this, yeah. right? Yeah. And they develop anxiety earlier. They develop depression earlier. Because this is not how they're supposed to be going and exploring the world. Right. It's not through the head. It's through the body. It's through relationship. It's mm. through interaction. And when we stifle that and we put them in their heads, they don't know how to interact and they don't know how to function. I've had to go through this whole process myself because, you know, I look at the degrees that I have and like I'm all about education, right? It was the mm. thing that I did. And I was so concerned about the school she was going to go to and all these things. And here she is unable to function in those environments. She did not do well. She loved the friendships, but she just was, yeah. I mean, she was in kindergarten telling me she was stressed and I was like, okay, this something is, you know, this yeah. is not right. Yeah. And so it was now I'm, I'm, I'm constantly having to deprogram myself in this idea of like, she's behind what does it mean to be behind? Behind what? Behind what? The right? norm? What norm? Who says that they need to know this function of math at this age? Or, Who determines or that? Or if that, then what? Yeah. So right. instead, we focus, you know, we focus on like functional math and things, you know, she loves money. So we do money through money math, right? Like yeah. that's something that we have fun with. And it was incredible because, you know, she has a hard time with writing and she just doesn't enjoy it as much, but she's an amazing, gifted storyteller. Mm. And mm. so we started typing instead and doing other things. There's other ways of doing things, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. when you let them lead, you begin to discover not only who they are, creating who they are, um, but they're able to do everything that they need to do yeah all the skills yeah. everything comes back to it i tell my daughter that you know the only thing that i really care is that she has the basic foundation of reading writing and math everything else right 
you know, uh, you know how far she goes with all of those things, but she just needs the basic foundation because that's life survival skills. Yeah. So that's my only, you know, that's my only input, you know, I know. And I, I love that because I always say that at schools, like the the things we should be teaching, we're not like relationship building, maintaining, completing, right. All these interactive skills that now I'm learning as a 53 year old. I'm exactly. like, oh my God, I had no idea how a healthy relationship works, right? Because it wasn't modeled. And then I went off the deep end and now I'm like, oh, wow. And I'm 53. Yeah. And I'm looking there to my, my son's high school and going like, he's learning the capitals of the countries. I'm like, who the fuck cares? I'm sorry. but Those are going to change anyway. Yeah, exactly. You and know? and w- <laughs> what are they good for? You're at a cocktail party and you're like, I know the capital of Belarus. I don't, but I know. you know. And, and that makes you sound intelligent. That's not intelligence. Well, that's, that's the problem is you know. that we've we've really focused on this idea of what intelligence is. Right. And right. we have taken away the most important aspects of education, which I'm not even sure they were ever there, but they are not being cultivated, which is yeah. critical thinking and creativity. Yeah. Right. And what we've ended up doing is I because I, I see, you know, I see sometimes she'll, you know, run into random kids on the playground and they'll be like, oh, do you know the cat? Do you know the president of, you know, when like right. the the 40 dirt, you know, yeah. and I'm like, who cares? Who cares? Who really cares? Google it. How you is, need it. Yeah. And how's that going to help your life? Right. What is that going to do? If yeah. you become a historian, you'll learn it. Sure. And, and you'll want be, to learn it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just, it's the unfortunate thing where we put children into the head and out of the body. And this is yeah. what's causing a lot of dissociation as we get older. I mean, I'm yeah. turning 47 in a week. And, you know, for me, I'm learning how to be in my body for the first time in my life. I was in my head as an intellectual. And as a result, what it did is it did not allow me to connect with myself, with others, as you said, relationship Mm -hmm. development and, you know, all these other aspects of my life that I'm having to deprogram and reteach myself. And why not let them have their way? I, I think it's amazing. I think we're touching upon something that, you know, this is related obviously to ADHD in a sense that there has to be a level of trust that your child will turn out. And I know that some people say, yeah, but if as an extreme case of ADHD, then I say, well, then there's an extreme case of work to be done. You know, if you look at it that way, if you call it extreme, well, it's just a matter of how calm can you get that nervous system, right? Yeah. How, what can you do to help that child to calm down on a literally daily basis, moment by moment? Because if, like you said, if she's stressed at school, well, that's not a calm nervous system. No. And it's, you know, I think the hardest part about parenting is that your children are always mirrors of you. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. She's stressed in kindergarten because I'm stressed at work. Mm. Right? There's a, there's, a, there's a mechanism at play that's happening where I'm transferring this energy yeah. to her because I am rushing to get her to kindergarten so that I can get to work. Yeah. And it leaves her with a dysregulated nervous system where she's now having to do whatever she's doing, you know, going from thing to thing and she's not having a break and then she's getting picked up and coming home and then we have to go through dinner and we have to do all the things. Yeah. That's a reflection of the way I'm living my life. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, not or, and for other parents, it, it, it also, because I hear people say, well, but you know, life is that way. There is a lot of stress and I want to teach my, you know, but then that's like the end I wanted to say is, and if we're accepting a stress, stressful world 
and we're buying into it and we're working in it and we're saying that's the reality, then again, we're not helping ourselves or our children to actually de-stress, to calm the nervous system down because we're like, well, this is how it is. This is how it is, right? It's, it's a trap. Well, that's the thing, the problem is that we say that this is how it is with this idea that things can't be changed. Yeah. So using science as example. So there's a lot of dogma in science, mm. right? Yeah. With how the body functions and this is just the way it is. Yeah. You just accept the research that's there and you do that. But that is not the true understanding of what's going on in the body. Yeah. That is a person perception. Somebody did some research, came down with a conclusion, and that was their perception of what they were looking at. Up until now. Up until now. But even it may have always, the thing is, is that, and again, you see this, like you see this with mainstream narratives versus what are the actual narratives that are out there? Because mm -hmm. there isn't just one narrative. There's multiple narratives that are out yeah. there, but one is made popular. And the one that is made popular is always for the benefit of something, someone, right. or some entity. Yeah. Right? And it's always the louder bullhorn because there's more money. So, so why is it this is the way it is? Because when you stay in a fearful, stressed modality or like mode within your body, whenever that is the basic undercurrent, you become a consumer of yeah. something. Yeah. Because that's of the why it's the way it is. Yeah. I was going to say, when you ask, why is that the way it is? The, the Freudian slip is because we pay so. I mean, say so. But really, because <laughs> yeah. we pay so. We pay so. You know? No, yeah. it's true. But it's, it's the, you know, it's, we are looked at as consumers. And so what is the way that we are going to be the best consumer yeah. is when we are in constant fear, agitation, when our nervous system is deregulated, yeah. when there is... Um, you know, any sort of illness within us when we are constantly in that survival of like, I got to pay the bills and I got to do this and I got to do that. We can make a choice not to be that way. I did not. I, I remember I used to have like a, I used to work out and I used to work out really hard because it was like the way I would get out my aggression in the morning and like mm. get like, just get to a point where like I could deal with my day. Yeah. And I remember having a trainer just saying something like, you know, you don't have to operate that way. And I was like, yeah, you don't know my life and you don't know what I have to deal with. You don't know how much I'm going on. And I was just, you know, like there's no other way to be. Yeah. And now I look at myself and I'm like, wow, look at who that person was. And it's, there's nothing wrong with who I was then. That's where I was. Yeah. And we just have to remember that, you know, to accept yourself wherever you are, but to look at the stories you're telling yourself. Why are you saying this to yourself? What is it that's there that's scared to change? Because usually there's something there that does not want to be dealt with. Yeah. For me, I thought I had dealt with my childhood. I thought I had dealt with, you know, leaving a career and doing all sorts of stuff. And what I'd never really, I'd never really truly let that be released from my body. Yeah. I had dealt with it intellectually. Right. right? And that's a big point that you brought up earlier. And you just circle back to that, this idea that fear is in the head, right? When we're in a fearful state, it's funny. Recently, I looked up the word anxiety in it because I grew up in Switzerland, so my native tongue is German, mm. but I left when I was 20. So there's certain words I never used as a 20 year old Swiss 
boy, right? And so I was like, what does anxiety mean in German? I looked it up. You know what it means? What? Fear. Uh, that's yeah, it. That's all it is. That's it. That's what anxiety is. But it's 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 sold, talking about pharmaceutical advertising, as a disorder, right? It's mm-hmm. like, this is the thing you have. First of all, you can't have it. Where is it? Right? Same with ADHD. You don't have it. It's a behavior. It's a, uh, it's a way that you're being in the moment in the case of anxiety the fear right but where's it coming from yeah i mean it's got it comes from memory right past events or it comes from the present which is society stress all that stuff and suddenly we're like afraid that the will fail in the future i heard that depression is when you're living in the past and anxiety is when you're living in the future yeah And I, you know, I think that this comes back to an important point, you know, where is it, right? Where, where does this exist? So a lot of people want to use genetics as a stepping stone (laughs) for why this happens. Predetermined. Nothing you you can do. You are not your genes. Yeah, I agree. You are not your genes. So we have genetic components that might determine our eye color or our hair color, but if you've noticed, those things can change. I've seen them change in people. I've seen them change not only in kids, I've seen them change in adults. Mm. These things can change. Why are they changing? Because it's not about our genetics. It's about the environment that controls right. our genetics, right? Exactly. So everybody's- Ep- Epigenetics heard, is- um, The hottest topic, right? Like one of the totally. hottest topics. But what people don't realize is that the epigenetics is a real direct relationship with our environment, right? This is our communication signal with the environment that we are in, what we're eating, what we're breathing, how we're, you know, thinking, the plants that we're interacting with, all these different aspects. And when we are changing that it changes the expression of our genes. Now I can say, I remember telling somebody that I was cured of my depression and suicidal tendencies. And cured is a word that is never used in medicine, right? This is something they will never say because nobody wants to have liability for it. Right, right, right. and in case it comes back. Why do I say that I'm cured? And this is not just a, a reprieve from it. Because when I look at that version of myself, that version of myself is a story that I give as an example of who I was. I have no relationship with that person. Now, does it mean that I don't have depressive moments or moments where I have a little bit of anxiety? Of course, we all go through it. That's part of life. But I see how different my thought patterns are. I see how differently I accept that and move on from it. And it's because I am a different person. Why am I a different person? Because the way my genetics expresses itself is a different person. I'm no longer expressing the same genes. I'm expressing very different genes. Now, could it go back the other way? Sure. I could destroy my life. I could go start eating McDonald's every day and, you know, doing bad things for myself. And yes, I will go back to that. We control what aspect of ourselves that we are able, you know, I'm sorry, we're able to control what aspect of ourselves we want to express by how we treat ourselves. Yeah. And this is why it's so important to be able to model these things to our children. Yeah. And in the case of ADHD, I hear this a lot to this day. I heard it yesterday. I hear it almost every day where somebody says, 
you know, when they find out what I do, they're like, uh, so, so, but it's genetic, right? <laughs> I hear it to this day. And I'm like, no, it's not. That's an incomplete truth. Yeah. There are certain things that are genetic. What my brother and sister had was a genetic disease. Now, does that limit what it could have happened? No. I don't know what the possibilities are, right? right? But if I set the limit saying, well, that's what's going to happen and this is what what it's going to be and then they're going to pass away at this age, then I don't open the door for possibility. I am limiting myself. Right. People get a cancer diagnosis. They're given a time or you have X amount of time or you, you're going to live for this time. That is based on research that is looking at a very small population, a right. narrow group based on very controlled lifestyles, very controlled, you know, um, in like, you know, all of the aspects of the clinical trial are very controlled. And so you're not looking at a true representation of right. a population. Yeah. If you limit yourself by what's out there and what you've been told and what is already known, then you are never allowing for that possibility to do something different. I remember, you know, when there were certain childhood diseases that were terminal and they have not been given medications and they have not been given anything. And these children are living still and they are no longer children, right? They're in their thirties and they are living a different life. Sure. They're still under parental care. Sure. There's still like certain aspects, but they did not cross over at an age that they were told that they were going to cross over. And also this, this, this is going a bit deeper and, we can do that and, and follow us, if you will, if you're listening. But in a spiritual sense, if we look at like why a soul is here, why somebody only lives 10 years versus somebody who lives 90, we go to this sort of 3D mental human self and we go, well, that's unfortunate that they passed away at 10 years old, right? Because we, we don't want that to happen to us. We don't want to happen to our children. But we don't know that that soul might have come here and in 10 years they got what they needed and they're moving on, right? So keeping that also, that big picture context helps me always to say, sure, there might be 5% of diseases that we just, it looks like they're genetic. There's nothing you can do. But does that mean it's bad? Does that mean it shouldn't be? We need to like fight it because the other 95% or say 90% of, of diseases, disorders that we say are genetic are just not genetic. Exactly. Like you said, they're not. Absolutely. I And, you know, I'm glad that you brought in a soul path because that is an important thing that we have to always remember that we are not the be all end all, right? Our consciousness here and this reality that we know yeah. is not the be all end all. There is a greater plan. There is a greater plan for yourself. You know, even if you don't want to look at it from a, you know, total spiritual glow, you can look at it for just yourself and you can better understand, you know, your own path and your own, you know, reason that you're here. Yeah. And sometimes, you have gotten everything that you need in that time. As you said, there are people who do choose and contract as a soul to take on certain diseases, to take on certain things. And they are processing a lot for humanity. And they might be, and this is even, we're going, I love this. We're going into the fabric of things that your siblings path or journey or experience they might have taken that on for your benefit. They for did. you, right? They did. They did. They okay. did. 
That was they, just a guess, but yes. Yeah, no, they right? they were my greatest teachers and parents. And yeah. through my awakening, like when I yeah. finally started to take control of my life and really delve into my spirituality and not just dabble in it um, and really do the healing work and uncover the trauma and really release it from my body, they were my guides and they led me every step of the way. I could feel them so visibly and tangibly. And I was so grateful. And I know that they were born for me. I also know that they were born to take on a lot of pain. They, Whether they were processing their own soul's pains and things that they had done, or whether they were processing it for the earth or for the world or who, whatever, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. But what I really valued was that I had a deeper relationship with them in my 30s and 40s, you know, than I did in my youth because I, they really were there for me. And there was a period where I stopped feeling them and seeing them. And I was wondering what happened. I remember the day that my sister went over to my daughter and became her soul guide. I remember it was a beautiful day. We were in Ireland picking apples and I remember, I felt it, it was so tangible and she moved over to my daughter Mm. and became my daughter's soul guide, spirit guide. Mm. And I hadn't felt my brother in a while and one day I was in a deep meditation and I had, you know, I was, I was, I was pretty deep in my own meditation, just out there and not on anything, not doing anything. This is just my personal meditation. And I asked to connect with my brother and he came in and he said that I didn't recognize his energy anymore because of all the work he had ascended to the next level. Mm. And so I didn't recognize that energy and it took me being in a deep meditation where my energy was raised, my consciousness was raised so that I could feel his frequency and uh, feel him again. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about these things they are pretty high level spiritual concepts if you're not used to it. Um, a lot of our listeners are into alternative paths and are into this kind of, you know, exploration. And I love that. And I think even if we just look at the fact that, let's say, if your siblings have passed on, right, they are not suffering. They've passed on. Yeah. The only people that will be suffering are us humans when we say, oh, that's so sad or, uh, you know, I hope, you know, they didn't hurt and all that stuff. It's still with us. And if we can let that go and just say, well, they had their path. We had a good time as much as we could. And now this is my path or my daughter's path. Right. And focus on that and then get that they have their own path. Like we're, we're just here to guide them. We can't just tell our son or daughter that you got you have to go to MIT and you have to become a a scientist or a doctor and this is your if not you're not going to be happy i mean that's such controlling behavior and not even talking about the big picture right but we get so wrapped up in that in that like pressure of you got to get the degree you got to get the job and the career so you're happy so i can die knowing that you made it yeah right absolutely i you know when we a lot of people think that you know science is separate from spirituality when they're actually one and the same and i used to get this question all the time when i was especially in graduate school like how can you you know believe in spirituality if you know if you are looking at a hardcore physical science well you have to look at the nature of reality and just just look at it at its very basic essence we're only 0.001% physical matter 
When you actually look at, take the smallest unit that we know going down, well, it's not the smallest unit, but one of the smallest units, an atom, right? And you look at the protons and the neutrons and the electrons, so the protons, the neutrons in the middle, and the electrons orbit on the outside. And they're just orbiting around, spinning like the way planets spin around the sun. Mm. And the electrons are so far away from the protons and neutrons that if you would look at this at scale, it's something like, uh, I forget exactly what it is, but like if you put a ball in the middle of a football field, the where the electrons are, are like on the edges of the field. Mm. So that's the amount of space that exists within an atom. Now you're, build, you're talking about building a human based on this, building our reality. We're mostly comprised of space. If you took all, what is it, nearly 8 billion people on the planet right now, and you condensed all the physical matter and you removed all the space mm -hmm. away, you know how what the size would be of the physical matter? I don't know. It's a sugar cube. Really? That's how much like physical matter is in all 8 it's 1 billion. 1% of 8 billion yeah. people, yeah. So it's 0 0.001%. Or, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the rest of us, what is that? What is that space, right? It's potential. It's energy. We're energetic beings housed in physical bodies. Mm -hmm. And so when we start to realize that our energy body is the most important aspect of our life, and yeah. you let that start to lead a little bit and you start to clear it and heal it and work with it and mm. know it, yeah. then the physical reality starts to make a little bit more sense. Right. And these things that we call diseases, for example, in the physical body, we, we then understand they can be energetically healed. Disease does not start on the physical realm. Right. It starts on the emotional realm, even if a physical thing caused the disease which is why the genetic story that narrative is so dangerous because most people go oh there's nothing i can do exactly it's the body that's broken got it so what's the medicine oh i'll take it for how long all right fine and it's exactly. over so potential like you said is over it's yeah. lost the other part that i think is a little bit difficult and i you know i still wrestle with this concept is understanding that Maybe you're not meant to cure everything in this lifetime, right? Yeah. We're infinite beings. And, uh, you know, I know everybody has a very different idea of what it means to live lifetimes on earth and, you know, whether you come back or not. I think I was always being Indian. That was something that was naturally part of my yeah. life, reincarnation, this concept. And it's something that I never doubted. My parents sent me to an all-girl Catholic school for 13 years. Mm. And so I was indoctrinated. Like I had Catholic guilt and yeah. I, I had, there was a very strong Jewish population. I had Jewish guilt. I had all the guilts. And like I had a very strong um, Catholic upbringing, even though my parents are not Catholic. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a thing, a concept that, the people in my Catholic school couldn't understand why I could so firmly believe in it. And it's not because of anything to do with my family or religion. I, as a young child, knew I had lived like a billion lifetimes hmm. and I could feel it in my bones. That was just something I knew. Yeah. And what happens is, is because we look at our physical life on earth as being the be all end all, we think that all of these grand ideas and everything that we're feeling is supposed to occur right now. Right. When right. in reality, it's part of our soul's journey. And so it's remembering that life continues. 
what we're doing is we're just transferring the energy from one aspect to another. Yeah. And so when we start to look at life as a continual journey, it kind of takes the pressure off a little bit. Now, I know there's bills to pay. I yeah. know that there is the reality to deal with, but you begin to surrender in a very different way. I am, you know, I was telling you earlier, you know, I'm, I'm having this conversation with my parents who are struggling with me because I am not doing the things that you right. said that they need for them to feel comfortable that if they pass on that I'm okay. They know that right? you made it, which really is a reflection on them. Yeah, they, they cannot, they do not understand why I would leave such a lucrative career in the peak where I was just rising higher yeah. to voluntarily quit and, you know, say that I don't want to go back and to now be in this space where I'm building a business and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's got its ebb and flow and I'm doing all these different things. And what I speak about sounds like mumbo jumbo to them. And so they are really struggling with this and yet they can sense something in me that they want for themselves. Of course. And they don't know how to get there. Yeah. And so there's an understanding. And the the reason that they are, you know, some, you know, they're supportive, you know, they're, they're, they're supportive in the ways that they can be. And the reason they can do that is because they see a piece in me that they've never seen before. Yeah. And that's everything. That's everything because I still have bills to pay and I still have all these things going yeah. on. And I don't always know where that next, you know, paycheck or something is coming from. Right. I don't always have that answer, but, but th- I do know that everything will be okay. And also you're alive and I'm alive and I can breathe and I yeah. have access to good food and clean water and I can care and love my daughter yeah. and I can do what's important in life. Yeah. And as long as I'm doing that active work, everything will be okay. I love that. And I can so relate to just when you went there, like, so like today, like literally in this very moment, I probably have the most financial pressure or breath down my neck. Mm -hmm. If I were to go into the future and have the doomsday, you know, prediction of what's going to happen, right? At the same time, I've learned to be in this moment and trust and be serene, right? There's a, I'm part of a 12-step program. It's the serenity, right? Like grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And that situation, I cannot change. I know that. Yet, I'm not freaking out, which I used to in the past. I mean, I had a little bit of a freak out a few days ago. Not a freak out. And that's okay. Just a, you know, like, oh, shit. But I'm sitting here today and I'm so alive because of that. And back in the day, say five, six years ago when finances were not an issue and everything was like on autopilot and it was fine, I felt so much less alive. I felt the autopilot, the comfort zone is so numbing. Numbing is exactly it. You know? But that's what, that's what the, and I'm going to call it an agenda. That's what the agenda out there is, is to numb us. Right. Yeah. To yeah. numb us from feeling. Yeah. They numb us with food. They numb us with medications. They numb us with distraction media. They numb yeah. us with, you know, working so hard 
to achieve a goal that can never be achieved if you follow the rules according yeah. to the way you are taught they should be for success. Yeah. You know, there's multiple layers in which we are numb. And that numbing is there to dissociate us from the wisdom that exists within our body. Yeah. Because coming back to that idea, our body is the most intelligent and capable machine that is there on earth totally. right now. Yeah. And, you know, I was telling you earlier, one of the biggest cons ever played on humanity is this idea that the body can't heal itself. Yeah. The body is meant to function optimally. It wants to survive. It's not against us. It's for us. All we need to do is to provide it with what it needs in order to do that. Yeah. Not to look at life as happening to us, but to look at life happening for, for us. Yeah. And when we do, we can start to see the messages that are being provided to us. Why are these things happening? They're happening to help you in some way. Yeah. And when you start to look at it that way, you can start to pull the fear back and you can start to see the beauty in every situation. Mm. Well said. I don't know if I can follow that up with something. <laughs> I always can, but <laughs> um, I just want to go uh, take a little bit of time to do touch upon two topics. One is obviously ADHD, mm -hmm. but you said this wonderful, you know, this powerful statement that I totally agree with which is the agenda, right? So we're going to take a little detour called the COVID detour. And One we'll, of my favorite topics. <laughs> same here. And we'll get to ADHD. And I just want to preface this. This is not an anti-vaccine uh, conversation by any means. Like I, uh, like I said earlier, and I think you mentioned this as well, there's certain times when Western medicine, right, has its place when it's an emergency and when lives need to be saved and so forth. So this is not an anti uh medication kind of uh, statement but i do agree that there's an agenda and to me became very clear during covid when i intuitively said at, at the beginning with the help of some friends who were really uh, researching stuff where i said this just smells a little bit like bullshit so tell me about you had mentioned that as well what came up for you when this narrative dropped on us as in like oh here's this bad virus and here's the only, again, this goes back to ADHD. It's like, here's this disorder and here's the only thing that works to heal it, right? Or cure it. I know that they don't use cure, but like to fix it or whatever. So when you heard about COVID and then the vaccines, where was your head at as a former scientist and still scientist? But, you know, where were you at? How did that land? Oh, <laughs> so there's a playbook. There's a playbook. And I know the playbook very well. So I saw it and I laid it out like what was going to happen because the playbook was so utilized for everything. Mm. And it's the same. And if I may just insert for our listeners, it could be a playbook or there was actually an event 101, I think it was called. When, I, when, I, when I'm talking about a playbook, um, I'm referring to the way pharma companies operate. So the event 101 and all of these different aspects of it are part of a bigger playbook. <laughs> got it. Okay, They're, so I just want to make sure which yeah. one you're talking about. So you're yeah, talking about absolutely. the pharma playbook. Okay, so, got it. So there's a, there's a bigger playbook at play, which I was not aware of when that was coming down. So I was not aware of Event 101 and the WEF yeah. and blah, 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 blah. So you first saw it through the lens of the pharma playbook, I only the manual. Saw it, I right. only saw it as this, you know, game plan of what we do so yeah. that we can promote something that we don't even have yet. 
Um, so I saw that. Um, when when COVID started coming out, I think the first thing that I noticed was that um, this was focused on disconnection. This was focused on um, separating people. That was the first thing that I noticed because I remember going around like hugging people and being very like very much like I'm going to hug as, as long as people wanted the hug. Obviously, yeah. I'm not <laughs> disrespecting right. yeah, anybody's yeah. personal um, boundaries, you know, boundaries yep. but. Yeah, so I, I just was very adamant about that. And then um, when we went in, you know, in California and in L.A., like that was one of the first lockdowns in the country, in the world, right? Yeah. And so yeah. I remember when that started happening, I took that as my sign to double down on my health. And I did not, I really, there was nothing that I could do, right, for anybody or anything except to improve my own health and well-being. Yeah. And so I really like I took I, I mean, I, everything that I was doing, I took to an extreme level of being as healthy as possible. And like I I gave up caffeine, I gave up alcohol, I like I just went all in. And it wasn't because I was like, I'm going to be strict about this and I'm going to do it this way. My body naturally guided me towards that. Mm -hmm. And it was the only thing that I could really control. Now I began to, you know, I, I was telling, you know, my, my former partner that I, you know, I could see what was happening. I thought a lot of this was fake. Um, I didn't exactly know anything about the disease, but like, it just seemed to, there was something that wasn't right. And I said, this is what they're going to do. They're going to, they're going to, um, create a, um, drastic need for something. They're going to make people demand that things are not happening fast enough. And then they're going to, um, manipulate the, um, ways that they can bring something to market faster. And that's all I knew, yeah. right? And, and then I said they're going to use social pressure and a lot of things to convince people that this is okay. Now, what happened was I, I wasn't anti-vaccinations or anti-pharma at that point because, you know, I'm only about a year and a half out of it at that point. And I, you know, that's a lot of shadow work <laughs> to, yeah. to deconstruct your whole, you know, your whole career at this point and every belief system that you've had, which is what I've done since. But, um, you know, I, I was really, I, I was, I was giving pharma the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. in the sense that they would run the trials correctly that they would um, go through the proper proceedings, that they were really trying to do something, you know? And, you know, I know the science, like I know, I, one of the things that being in communications is I got to be with the C-suite and I got to be with the scientists, I got to be with the marketers, I got to be with everybody. So I saw the inside out of every company. Mm -hmm. And it's a really kind of privileged place to be to understand how the system works, you know? Even like you know, going all the way through medical conferences and insurance and investors. I mean, I dealt with everybody. So I could see it from all those different aspects of who is operating in what aspect. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was really what gave me the clue that something fishy was going on. So I knew the scientists were just going to be working away, thinking they're doing good, believing they're doing good. And so I knew that they were going to publish that data. Now, what happened was they confounded the whole issue 
by opening up this is i mean this is the way science should be done it should be open to the public it should be open record that you know anybody can access the data and everything can be kind of released as it is but the problem was there was an influx of information coming in and that allowed for data to be wiped away very very quickly mm-hmm. so I was paying attention to the drug trials and I was looking for their phase one data because phase, so every drug goes through preclinical, then it goes through phase one, phase two, phase three, and then it goes through approval and then post-marketing approval. Now, not every drug takes that path because they've created mechanisms in which drugs can get out early because there's a demand for it. So things- an emergency. Or an emergency. Well, emergency use is a little bit more complicated. Emergency use, you have to be able to prove that there is nothing else out there that can work, Mm. right? So here they had ivermectin. They're downplaying it. They're saying, because why is that? That's pennies. It's it's a medication that's pennies. So of course they don't want that. So they have to downplay that, show that it's not going to work. No other antiviral is going to work. There's nothing else that's going to work. There's nothing out there. So they have to already forge the data, or not forge it, but they have to um, skew the data so that they're showing that that is not possible. That is the only way they can get emergency use authorization. So that is how they, that was the first step, right? Mm-hmm. So down, downplay all of that. Nothing else works. So this is the only thing you can do when there were lots of doctors that were treating in lots of different ways and yeah. showing success in lots of different ways, yeah. not just ivermectin, but other things as well. Now, I want to take a step back from this because I was saying this then, but I had no proof for it. And now I can say this with a little bit more authority. You know, was there really a virus called COVID that was happening. Now, there is something out there that's man-made that we can feel because, you know, people who've had it know that it feels a little bit different than anything else they've had, Yeah. right? Yeah. So there's something there. Yeah. But with all these people in the hospital, with all these people everywhere going around saying like, oh my God, and, you know, emergency rooms are full. And that wasn't always true. That was a story that was being told, but that yeah. wasn't true everywhere. The thing is, is that, you know, we can we can cause ourselves to go into an extreme disease mode yeah. in a heartbeat. Yeah. We can cause exacerbate. We can least. exacerbate everything, yeah. but we can actually make it worse than an exacerbation. Yeah. We can put yeah. ourselves into an extreme state. Now, were people coming in with various different things? Absolutely. Were people needing to be intubated? Absolutely. Was it because of a so-called virus? Maybe not. Right. Maybe that wasn't the cause for the the extreme damage. That might have been a an instigator to have the the immune system get you know need to go to work. And then if you were not healthy, then yes, there's a problem. Well, right? and but it was also the fact that fear was the biggest motivator yeah. that was that yeah. was out there at that time. People, I mean, do you remember like people gloved and goggled and you know and I still see them today. Yeah, but I mean, I mean but it was. I remember you know, the frenzy of like yeah. grocery store gloves, everything, and you're just like, and people what are the fuck? walking in and like you know the suits that you go underneath yeah, a house with, right? And like, And, you know, and I remember at one point, even though I didn't believe all of this, I remember getting scared living in L.A. because the fear was so prevalent. 
And so what happens is, is that I remember I even had friends who went to the hospital because I was, I was a person who was like, no matter what I, (laughs) I ended up macerating my finger with an immersion blender. And I was like, I am not going to the hospital. I'm going to figure this out. And I did. Luckily I did. But you know, I was the person who was like, I'm not going to the hospital for anything, but there are people who they cannot handle that fear in their body. And I had friends who didn't believe in it at all, but then they got a little something and suddenly the fear kicks in. And they're off to the hospital. And they're off to the hospital. And now the hospitals are full. Why? Because of COVID? Well, no, because a lot of people were afraid something might happen. Yes. And so it's filled. And then you had the PCR tests, which is a different conversation. That is and a different that's uh, you know, something I'm very well versed in as a molecular biologist. And um, you know, that was that was another big issue. Yeah. But the thing is, is that people were getting labeled as having something regardless of whether they had it or not. Yeah. And it's the only disease, really, where you didn't have to show symptoms, where you didn't have to have any exposure to it or anything, and you could still be a carrier and had to isolate and be at home. Right. You didn't have to, like, it's like, Every single possibility, oh, you might have COVID. It's the right. only disease where we don't have to have, you You could have, you know, like if the PCR test came back positive, but you were asymptomatic, that suddenly that meant that that was, that was something going on there. Well, again, like PCR is a whole different conversation. But what was happening was they were building that frenzy on purpose because that is the way you can lower the standards to get, an an emergency use authorization and also to not have to finish clinical trials. So I was looking for the phase one data. One thing that I noticed was (laughs) this was a, this was something I was told in graduate school by one of my professors. He said, a science is a lot like throwing spaghetti at a wall, whatever strand sticks, you draw your bullseye around because it's really hard to conduct science. Science is like, I was so neurotic in the lab because trying to get like some to repeat data and it was just, it was mind numbing. And so what happened was, is their end goal is obviously reduction in transmission. They couldn't get anywhere near it. So this is where, you know, you could see their phase one data and looking at all these different endpoints. And the only thing that's kind of sticking is this idea of reduction in symptoms, maybe. I don't know. Like, it's just, it's very wishy-washy. Well, yeah. And they just kept changing the narrative and kept changing the goalpost. And so I remember, um, you know, I my, my former partner is a climate scientist. And I told him, you know, there's no evidence that it has any reduction in transmission. And he's like, what do you mean? Of course it does, blah, blah, blah. And like, because he just heard the narratives that were out there. And I said, it doesn't. Now, he was a little bit naive. <laughs> he took to Twitter. <laughs> and he said he asked a very innocent question he said can you show me the data that it shows a reduction a reduction in transmission and he got like he just he his he got no data but he got hammered no but by his (laughs) colleagues by his colleagues and they were all like are you a climate denier how can you you know say this this is why people are anti-science and blah 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 all he asked was can you i know where's show me the data not like like, and he was asking it very innocently like he was not coming at it with any sort of like hard head or anything like that 
Um, and eventually some epidemiologists were showing some things, even though it was not a reduction in transmission. They were, you know, they were saying all these things. So I was willing to, um, right before that point, I was willing to give pharma the, the benefit of the doubt. People are like, are you going to take the vaccine? And I said, I'm going to wait for five-year data. I want to see what it is at five years, and then I'll consider it. And so they were like, okay, so, you know, that's, that's something. By the time it got to the point where it was released for first line personnel, I was like, I am never taking this thing. So it was a very short window where I was doing that. Now I still gave pharma the benefit of the doubt when it came to children. I thought they were going to do children right. Now, one of the things that I communicated for one of the companies that I used to work for was this idea that children are not little adults. Okay. This is a really important point when it comes to pharma, more important than anything else. Children are not little adults. They have a completely different mechanism that is operating. Mm -hmm. When babies are born, their heads are bigger than their bodies, right? In terms of, you know, the way their proportionality is. And then as they grow, you can't tell me that an infant is anything like a three-year-old and the three-year-old is anything like a seven-year-old or a seven-year-old is anything like a 15-year-old and a 15-year-old is anything like a 20-year-old. They are completely different. And as we age, we're very different as well. But that strike that when they're young, it's even more striking, Mm -hmm. right? And it's even more of a biological difference in how they work. So the problem that was happening in pharma was they could not get drugs for children as fast. They can't get through Mm. the same kind of, um, the bureaucracy. They can't, they can't sideline all the red tape that's there because of all of these aspects that children are much harder to treat. Mm. So that would mean that if they're going to put a trial for children when it comes to vaccines that it should be done with the same kind of rigor that they would do for any other drug. They loosened that red tape by so much. I actually threw up. Like I literally threw up when I saw that data. It terrified me. And, you know, that was the moment that it was seeing that data where I went back through vaccination records for everything. And I said, my daughter is never getting another vaccination in her life Mm. because I began to understand what was going on. And it terrified me. They took the, you know, the safety data from adults and they applied it to kids and they, they only did something like a thousand children in these clinical trials. I mean, it was like a drop in the haystack. It was, it, yeah. it, I don't think it was even a thousand. I think it was like 250. It was, it was just so scary. And that was the moment when I really, it was, it was honestly the children that did it for yeah. me. Well. That really made me question everything. And that's when I did the ultimate shadow work. And I really went against, you know, I had to unlearn everything that I had ever learned. That's powerful. And that's what got me too with ADHD, with the children, right? When I um, voluntarily tried all the ADHD medication myself, because I'm like, well, before I was going to give this to my son. That's impressive. I want to see what it feels like. And, you know, I did not do this in a supervised fashion. I mean, I did it in a researched supervised fashion, but I didn't, I wasn't going to go through an expert quote unquote, because they just wouldn't have allowed me to do what I needed to do. You know, I trusted myself. And I remember the first day taking, um, Adderall. I also remember the first day of taking Ritalin and I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. This is what we give to our kids. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That's speed. I, I used to take so Ritalin from my friends who had ADHD in college so I could stay yeah. up all night and study. Right. And so I get it. 
at the same time, when you have four-year-olds or five-year-olds on Ritalin, right? I was like, no, like this is this is too soon. Like, if anything, wait until they're 18 and they can decide for themselves, for example, right? But what we're doing is literally child abuse. So I, I actually have a personal example of that. My, um, my mother just out, you know, she's, you know, has a lot of love for her children, but she has a lot of fear and she has not dealt with anything that she has dealt with in her life, mm. which, you know, my brother and sister being a big part, but there's a lot more. And, um, you know, she just is needing to control situations in whatever way she can. So she was concerned that my youngest brother um, did not focus when she was trying to teach him something and had just diagnosed him with ADHD. Mm. And there was no official diagnosis. She doesn't really know much about these diseases, you know. But and she had hurt from somewhere. and She's, she's like, oh, a pediatrician. It. So, oh, okay. well, but, then, yeah. you know. It, it's she understands, but it's still a very different diagnosis. Like right. you don't get diagnosed by a, yeah. a pediatrician, right? Right. Um, and so she started giving him Dexedrin, and I watched him change. I watched him. I watched him morph before my eyes. Yeah. He was a really funny, you know, energetic kid. He had a lot of energy because kids have a lot of energy yep. because they're meant to move and they're exploring they're, the world yeah. and they came here to experience. Yep. And, you know, he became very plain. Yeah. And yeah. very, you know, quiet. Obe and obedient or obedient. whatever. And he even knew something was wrong. Um, mm. I don't know how many years he had been on Dextrin, but I, I didn't, I didn't know it at this point. I didn't know exactly what was going on. I just watched him change dramatically. And I was out of the house at this point cause we have a, a, yeah. a, a 12 year age gap. Mm. And, um, he one day came to me and he hands me this pill and he says, what is this? And, uh, you know, I was like, oh, I don't know. But my parents have a physician's desk. Back in the day, they used to have these big books the of, book. all the, yeah, yeah. of all the pills, right? So I just scrolled through there looking for this pill. And there it was, Dexedrin. And I told him what it was. And he says, I've been taking this every day. She's been telling me it's vitamin B or vitamin oh, wow. D or vitamins or whatever. And, um, you know, and I think that that, you know, it was, it was a, she did it out of her version of love, but I see how it changed him. I see what it yeah. did. And I can yeah. see like, you know, that was a very apparent thing. And, and to watch a child go through that and consider him becoming very subservient right. as, you know, a desired outcome is yeah. very scary. It is. And, and I think so many parents are so intimidated by this. My child's not going to turn out in life. And the doctor says it's the only way. And the school won't keep him there until. And again, the school going. school is another. That's a big one, right? And going back to what you said earlier, like all these things are. This is showing up so we can transform it, right? It's probably the wrong school. It's pro the child's probably not eating well, sleeping enough, too many video games. The parents are probably hiding that they're unhappily married still. Uh, they're stressed out at work. They're not saying all of them applies to all of them. But but if we start looking at all these aspects of life and we flip them over and go like, can that be improved to be less stressful? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Again, the pill is only a Band-Aid. The pill is only a temporary relief. It's not even actually curing anything or healing anything. It's I just, don't even know that it's a Band-Aid in this case. 
It might just be a... Because this is an idea of what we have on how people should right. operate. Right. So it's not even a band-aid. It's a control mechanism. Right. It's a, yeah, f- trying to create this citizen that we're told we're supposed to create in order for them to be happy. Because what right. is wrong if they are hyperactive? And, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong except for the fact that they can't fit into society in the same way. Right. Right. So it's not it's not necessarily, you know, it's not like a, you know, a Band-Aid where you're using a medicine on cancer to slow the cancer down. It's you know, this is a control mechanism. Yeah. And here's I mean, this is another big topic we don't have time for. We're going to do a a 2.0 or part two for sure, because there's so many uh, little side corners we can go into. And I love it. Right. The spirituality and education and some of the things you talked about earlier where it's like, Oh, what's, what's happening over there. But I think the, the, the main sort of takeaway that I just got from, from what we were just talking about is really like not just blindly trusting the physician, the, the narrative, the, the agenda, right? It's like, okay, what's happening here. And, And then the kicker is, I think, the intuition, like as a parent, how does it feel to me? Like you said, when you heard the whole narrative and COVID and we're using this as an example, if you're listening, you're like, why is this about COVID? Because we had to literally stop and go, does this feel right? Is this seem, is there some truth here or not? What do I need to throw out and keep? Right. And I think most of us are so stressed and we don't have time that we don't stop and listen. Well, this is exactly it, is the reason why the agenda is to dissociate ourselves from our body is because you you know, everything you need is inside of you. Everything you need to know as truth or non-truth lies within your gut intuition. And the more you are dissociated from your body, the more your gut is destroyed, the more all of this is happening, you know, to you instead of for you, the more of your power you give away. You know, there's nothing wrong with being scared and not knowing what's happening. Mm -hmm. But rather than using this as an excuse to go eat some donuts and drink some alcohol, this should be a time where you can, sure, if you need to do that to pacify yourself for a little bit, allow yourself that space to do so. But know that this cannot last forever and now start to go inward and try to figure out what is really going on. And when you do that, you will find the truth within you and you will find it because truth is not scary. And that was basically the guiding point that I had, because here I am like, (laughs) you know, a fish swimming upstream when everybody else is going downstream and I'm feeling very alone and isolated. And it's, you know, here I am, you know, having certain expertise, but it's going against the narrative and I don't have, I'm not in the industry anymore. I don't have actual proof. I don't have actual data. All I have is like what's available that gets wiped and (laughs) I can't find it anymore. Um, you know, all these things are happening and all I can follow is that internal truth and that internal, while it might seem scary on the outside being on my own, that internal truth was not scary. It was not scary to do things differently because it felt right. Mm. And that's the North Star. I, I love this. And I think this is a, a good uh, point to pause our first conversation um, because you really brought it back to this North Star, this internal truth, this intuition, the, right, the, the thing we calibrate during our lifetime where we go impulse to do something oh bad idea adjust impulse to do something good idea adjust right we just 
but we're not taught to do that. We're, like you said, we're distracted and we're pumped full of fear so that we don't listen to that. Because if we were to listen to our intuition, we would probably, this is my guess, buy none of the shit we buy, believe in none of the shit we believe in, eat none of the shit we eat, take none of the pills we take. You know, I'm generalizing, but I think we would start to figure out what's right for you. And you said a great statement earlier. You said that you started to listen to your body, right? And it's like, well, what does that look like? How do you, what do you mean listen to your body? Does it speak? Does, you know, but that awareness of stopping, getting quiet, and then what am I feeling or hearing or seeing or whatever, intuiting, um, I believe creates independent people. Absolutely. The dependent ones are the ones that are dependent on medication, on the government telling them what to do. And that sort of like dependency is a true addiction, right? And, and I'm, a, I'm committed through this movement, and I know you are too, with your work, to, to teach people how to heal themselves. Absolutely. And I believe that a conversation is the first start, right? We just did a conversation. And I think even having a conversation with your physician, your psychiatrist and say, look, I'm, I just, I need more answers. Like, I'm not sure this is what we're going to do, but like, give me some time and then talk to the, to your husband, if you're married or your wife or your partner and say, Hey, what should we do? Like the conversation itself, I think is going to open up that, that space where we have to start listening to more than just Google search results and doctors and, you know. Absolutely. And, and it's important to remember that, you know, no matter what information that you find, it, you know, remember that that's just a perspective. And if your intuition is going against that, there's nothing wrong with that because you are just tapping into a different side than what's being presented. What we see online, what we are hearing from doctors and, you know, my family's still full of doctors, you know, like this is not, you know, I'm a, I'm definitely the psychedelic sheep in the family, <laughs> but you know, there's a, it's important to remember that they are, um, you know, being funneled information that is really one-sided. And so this is what's being propagated by the media and even Google search results and even, you know, all aspects that you're looking at. So if you are sensing something and you're not finding those answers online it, or, or through other people, don't doubt yourself. Yes. And... I will say I'm a great example of that because I'm, I'm really just a regular person who decided to research, right? I'm not a doctor. I'm not an expert in ADHD. And there was so many moments when I was like, I think it's not genetic and here's why. Or I think medication isn't the best. You know, I had these impulses and then I would do podcast episodes. I would do rants on it and just download. And then six months later, I would meet an expert who wrote a book. New York Times bestseller who said, yeah, that's true. And I was like, oh my God. So, you know, I'm saying this because every person out there listening, you have an intuition. You can listen to those upstream swimming thoughts or ideas and just explore them, journal on them, write them down, discuss them with someone you trust. And most likely at some point you will find an expert who's like, actually, you're right. Absolutely. You know, and I think that's the power of the people, right? Absolutely. Yay, Vanita, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. It was a lot of fun to have this conversation. It's been a pleasure, and I know we're going to do a follow-up. So Sounds great. All right, until next time. Bye.